Hello, and welcome to Women in Retail Talks, the podcast where C-suite executive women in the retail space share their stories of professional growth, leadership development, personal journeys, and more. I'm Marie Albajez, Senior Editor of Women in Retail, a membership-based community of executive women at leading retailers and brands. Today, I'm joined by Christina Kubeta, who most recently was the Chief Merchandising Officer and Consumer Division Head of FTD, the Flower Delivery Service. She's going to share more about how she navigated the merger at FTD, what she looks for in building a great team, and a lot more. So, Christina, let's bring you in. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, me too. I'm excited for this conversation. And I want to just get straight into talking about your time at FTD. We were talking right before this about how uh, you most recently left, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. But I know that you joined in uh, December of 2020 and that, you know, when you were hired, the company had made it through the other end of a bankruptcy that happened in 2019 and had just launched the rebrand. So, you know, enter Christina. I'd love to know what that start was like at FTD. <laughs> really good question. So the start was actually a massive undertaking. The post the bankruptcy, obviously, they had reduced the staff quite a bit. And there was a lot of turnover in the merchandising leadership just prior to me. So the team, when I entered, was really not structured properly yet and didn't have the systems or support to be truly excellent or, quite frankly, I would say, enjoy what they were doing. Mm. Um, I inherited a team that was smart, hungry, um, and loved being there. But there were a lot of sort of things around them that were quite frustrating the bankruptcy also, in my opinion, created a really fragmented organization where roles that were really critical to collaborate had sort of been scattered across the company. And from my point of view, that just wreaks havoc on day-to-day cross-functional coordination. It was challenging for folks really to get things done. And then, so now you have this, like, it, additionally, there's this massive influx of creativity with the rebrand. Mm-hmm. And, which is exciting and gorgeous. And then this desire to innovate and grow almost like a startup. Mm-hmm. And that was, of course, exciting and what attracted me to the job. But we weren't actually in a position to execute on that, given what I had, what I just kind of walked through, right? So my first six to eight months were all about really learning trial by fire. So I joined just prior to two major retail peaks. So Valentine's Day and Mother's Day, which are not for the faint of heart, if anybody is familiar with those retail peaks, and then really just got focused on rebuilding processes and teams. And in some places, the organizational structure, that was really like the backbone of what needed to get done while simultaneously here I am, right. Learning about flowers and then how to develop a point of view about how the brand should come to life through products, the gifting service. So not for the faint of heart, but I would say really my background in building things from scratch to scale really positioned me well for that. That's often a tumultuous ride. And I had really lovely colleagues. I'm just a big proponent of the concept that, you know, great teams are everything. So it was certainly an intense start, but um, that's really where I focused was on creating a good foundation. Yeah. When you were talking, I kept thinking like, wow, you're really, you're starting from scratch here. And that's appealing to you, which is great. So walk me a little bit more through like the team. You mentioned, you know, they were like really hungry to get started, but there was, there was some, some struggles, some challenges there in terms of like disjointed leadership and that sort of thing. So, you know, as you're, you're working through all of these challenges, you know, your, your team is at the center of that. How did you kind of get them on board? How did you get them 
to to greenlight your ideas and vice versa? I think just to start, just getting in the trenches with them. That's yeah. the, in my opinion, um, you know, leaders take all leaders take different tacks related to this, but in my opinion, it's one of the um, easiest and quickest way. Number one, to learn to really gain empathy for your team and what they're going through. And then number three, to just gain the trust and buy-in. So being in the trenches helped me see that how difficult the systems might've been. And when we weren't, when we may have trouble, may have had trouble delivering something on time or something as innovative, innovative as we wanted it to be sort of what the reasons for that were, um, you know, really being able to see it through their eyes. That was, that was really important to me. And they had been through so much before Mm -hmm. I joined. So when you're kind of there through that level of turnover, there's a healthy level of skepticism about new leaders coming in, right? You have your ideas, you're energetic, you think you might know how to solve problems. And folks on the other side of the table might be sitting there thinking like, I've seen this before, you know, how right. long is this going to last? Guy? Is she, is she really going to listen? Um, right. So I think, and, and certainly I'm sure there are places I could have done it better to start with, but I think um, really just kind of getting my hands dirty um, helped me, helped me retool things and um, get on the same, get on the same side with my team. Yeah. I love that. So you mentioned, you know, you're really like learning trial by fire. What are some of the ways that you found have been successful in really getting to know the team listening? You know, are there, do you do one-on-one meetings? Like what is your kind of standard practice for, I'm going to learn everything I can about this company and this team so that they can be successful. So I think certainly one-on-ones are helpful, but I think more so it's about a simple question, asking the question and listening to the answer around how would you do this? Where do you see there's opportunity to change this? If you could reinvent it, what would you do? Versus bringing in your own ideas to start. I like to ask questions first and see what I get back and then table some controversial ideas around if we did it this way, what would you think about that? Um, And it, that kind of starting with that seek to learn mentality, I found gets you to a good place. Yeah. Because I think at that point they're, they're willing to share, right. If they've got a leader who is showing a great interest, who isn't just kind of throwing their ideas out there and saying, well, we're going to do it this way. I know you guys did it this way in the past and that didn't work. So, you know, rather than just coming with your own kind of set of of initiatives and ideas, you're taking the time to learn from the people that have been there longer and can see, you know, what's worked and what hasn't. So it's really good advice. The one thing I'd put on top of that, which I think is really important is putting your, putting your money where your mouth is. So like, you've got to deliver after that. If you've, if you've listened and you've heard and you've asked the questions, being able to then regurgitate back to your team. This is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm understanding is in the way of being excellent. These are, this is what I'm hearing are your ideas for where there's opportunity for the business to grow. If we fix these couple of things, you'll be able to thrive in your role. Did I hear it right? So for me, that's like a really important and excellent starting point. And then two, I actually go out of my way to hold myself accountable in front of everyone publicly. You said, these are the five things we need to fix here's where I am on fixing the five things. 
I think I'm going to get to number five by this time. In the meantime, I'm going to ask you to do X, Y, Z to help us get there. I'm going to be in it with you and I'm going to keep you regularly updated. So creating that kind of level of transparency and holding myself accountable, I've also found to be really important, especially in situations where, again, you have a lot of rebuild or sort of reconstruction to do. Yeah, that's so great because, I mean, so many times, you know, a leader is is up for listening and writing down the ideas and then, you know, months go by and there's no action taken. So I love that you're you're being transparent and saying like, I, you know, I can't do everything. Here are the things that I've heard that I think will also work. And here are the next steps. And here's me holding myself accountable and letting you guys hold me accountable by saying like, this is what is in the works and this is what's possible and this is what's not possible. So I love that. So as you're getting to know this team and this company, I'm guessing you're also building the company in that, you know, you mentioned that it had a reduced workforce. I'm guessing that you were hiring at at some point in in the three years. Uh, What were you looking for when it comes to hiring great candidates? Sure. So when I'm building my team, outside of looking for, are you excellent at your skill set, right? For me, that's like just table stakes. There's kind of a healthy list of things I'm kind of sussing out in the interview process. So do you seek to learn? Do you have that sort of same fiber or mentality that I was just kind of talking through? Because we'll be able to solve a lot of problems that way. How do you collaborate? Do you look to repair when things are broken or do you throw your hands up and get frustrated? Are you a good human? Can others trust you? For me, that's really important. If you're smart, but you're a jerk, you're out on my team. And then do you have stamina to reinvent? That kind of goes with the, you know, when you, when you find things are broken, do you seek to repair or throw your hands up? Those are some of the critical things I'm looking for in my teammates um, and really looking to kind of put, build the team as sort of puzzle pieces. I also look at how different skill sets complement each other um, because ultimately those things start to have a compounding effect and you can get to someplace really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we just had um, the chief e-commerce officer of Dick's Sporting Goods, Denise Carcos um, at an event and she was talking about, you know, the the power of an employee having a positive attitude and how much of a difference that can make when you have an an energy drainer on your team versus an energy saver. Mm. And, you know, back to what you were saying about, you know, someone who's not going to be negative about it, who's going to look to fix the problems instead of just pointing out the problem. So I think we hear that a lot. And I think that that's, that's a great way to think about, you know, your next interview or your next hire and what they look like. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the merger that you you saw FTD through with um, the e-commerce company from you flowers. And I know that, that meant, you know, your executive team was, was changed up as well. So I would love to have you walk us through how you navigated this merger after everything else that you had been through. <laughs> so in just reflecting on the experience, I think what it boiled down to is I really just brought one simple point of view to the table every day, which was that nothing good comes from not bringing your best self every day. So put another way, the energy you put out is often what comes back to you. 
Say, say that one again. Nothing good comes. Nothing good can come from not bringing your best self every day. Mm-hmm. You know, and like put another way, the energy you put out there is often what comes back to you. Mm-hmm. So I tried to bring that into every situation. So whether it was navigating two different CEOs in under six months, you know, I worked with three different CEOs in my time there mm-hmm. or a brand new executive team or new systems and processes that in many instances were counter to what we had established. That's all pretty significant. Right. And I think it's, it's pretty easy to, um, it's pretty easy to potentially get defensive about what you've built before and be sort of focused on that. But, mm-hmm. um, that wasn't the, the, the tack I chose to take. Um, like I said, it's, it can be easy to, to defend past decisions, but, um, when the, the reality is it's a, it's a new day with a new structure and new ideas. So going against that grain, I just find to be a, a massive drain of energy. I really mm-hmm. think about, you know, how to keep your energy up and, and to your point earlier, stay positive. Um, so I focused in that way, um, building relationships, educating the new team, also seeking to understand myself, and then also really um, thinking about the people and trying to be a rock for the folks underneath us across the organization. It's quite a bit of change. Um, you know, and then I was ultimately asked to stay on and help the new leadership navigate the transition, develop a new org structure, pressure test how to merge the best from both companies. And in doing so, I also got to really help a bunch of employees have closure. Mm-hmm. You know, work, work is often an emotional experience after all. So I think getting to see that process through with many of the teams that I built and coached, it honestly really meant a lot for me personally too. Yeah. We, we have spoke with another um, C-suite exec at, at Amtrak about, um, you know, the importance of succession planning. And she said a lot of the similar things that you have about, you know, following through and making sure that your, your employees and your, your direct reports have that kind of closure and know that, you know, when, when this certain C-suite executive leaves, that they're in a really good position to carry the company onward. Um, so I, I'm wondering for you, you know, as, as you had, you know, the, the new leadership and the new CEOs, what does that transition look like? How are you helping them integrate into the new company? You know, the merger comes with a whole new set of, of, of things and, and systems and processes that you have to integrate. How do you go about, you know, having the patience to teach them what life is like at FTD while also being open to, to their ideas and to uh, whatever, you know, kind of systems they had in place prior to the merger? Well, I think it kind of just goes back to those two things we talked about, which was, you know, what's going to give you energy Mm -hmm. and what, in the long run brings out positive, you know, impact or effects or opportunities for yourself. So if you're bringing sort of a tired, um, negative defensive mentality, that's not going to attract anything good for you in just the simple logical way. That was kind of the way I looked at it. Um, so I really just tried to kind of put that hat on every day, like we said. Um, and then otherwise, you know, I thought it was important when you're bringing together such different cultures and ways of operating to really try to highlight a couple of key things to your point about like succession planning and integrations, 
you know, one is where knowing as a leader, where your single points of failure are, um, as much as we try not to have them, we, we always, they're always kind of are, uh, throughout, you know, the systems and teams you build. And I think just merger or not thinking through what those are and having sort of mental backup plans for yourself, even if you're, you know, not able to in that moment, build out bigger teams or systems around it. Um, I think too, just highlighting and sort of underscoring the difference in operating principles between the two companies. So um, I think of that as um, sort of mentalities or um, just really methodologies, points of view that we had about the way to build the business. Everything structured was structured around that and fell from that. So if you don't understand those, mm-hmm. a lot of things can seem confusing. So I think it's important when you have a new when you have a merger and a new sets of people coming together that you kind of start with, here are the core operating principles around the way we ran the business. Here are the, the, the core points of view we had about the market and that all the decisions fell from that. And then I think um, thirdly, it's like the soft stuff, like the thing you can't find on a piece of paper anywhere, which is how the culture operates. Right. And again, I think for the incoming team, without having sort of some folks help shepherd that process, uh, it can be clunky. It can feel uncomfortable for, you know, the incumbent employees. Um, and at the end of the day, the idea for bringing companies together is always to be a more powerful and stronger force, right? And certainly mm-hmm. there's that opportunity for from me Flowers and FTD. So I think I tried to focus on how to bring those couple of things to light and just be a good partner. Yeah. I mean, cause you can't, you can't have a strong and powerful company if you don't understand how the company culture is. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I love what you were saying earlier about knowing as a leader, where your points of failure are. I mean, going back to what you were saying about being transparent and being held accountable. We talk a lot on this podcast about celebrating failures. Uh, and when you have a leader who is, failing publicly and is saying, look, it's okay to fail as long as, you know, there's, there's something coming out of that failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that really resonated with me. I always try to, I always tried to own that to your point publicly. This happened. It didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. Here's why. Here's yeah. what we learned. And here's where we're going next. I think people can relate to that and can follow that. It's when you kind of can't unpack the, the, the picture for folks that it gets difficult to have, you know, confidence in leadership and to keep going because you're inevitably going to hit rough patches, right? It doesn't all go smoothly. Right. And when you see a leader who is, you know, actively saying that it, it encourages you to feel like you can fail and it's going to be okay. You're not going to get reprimanded or lose your job. So exactly. And actually that's, an, that's really the most excellent point about that approach. And I noticed that it also encouraged, it encouraged better conversation with me. I would find that employees would come to me and say, I'm working on this thing, but I cannot figure out how to solve it. Or, you know, we just walked through that, but to be honest, I really didn't follow point four of the strategy. Can we do that again? Just me and you. And I would, I would observe that from teams that didn't even report to me. And that in turn helps me create better connections across all the divisions. 
Um, so even though it's uncomfortable and seems kind of counterintuitive to like sort of publicly declare <laughs> where you failed, um, I actually found it quite galvanizing, you know, and as a leader, you're not sitting there feeling like, you know, this is this thing I'm kind of harboring. You're kind of all in it together every day. Right. I mean, it, sh- it shows that you're human, right? And so often, you know, when we have someone in the C-suite that's like this untouchable, you know, their door is closed, they're they're so disjointed from their direct reports. But when you have someone who's vulnerable, vul- vulnerable enough to say, you know, I failed and, you know, I don't have all the answers and I'm struggling with figuring out the solution to this then it makes them more human and it makes them makes the, the direct reports see, okay, well, if, if Christina is doing that, then, then it's okay for me to do that and be vulnerable as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how you got here, how, you know, how you had a career in merchandising. I know that you retail wasn't always in your career path. You were in marketing and advertising. So walk us through, you know, your, your humble beginnings all the way until now. <laughs> sure. I, and I, you know, definitely have a, uh, an atypical career path um, for landing in the role that I, you know, was just in. Um, I started in fashion at a luxury house. Um, and I ultimately came up through Marcom at creative agencies and tech companies and then I pivoted my career to be more general manager track and PL responsibility because I really wanted to gain that experience of, of sort of personally being responsible for building the business. And in the process, I was always choosing the company that was about to reinvent the space. For me, that was the common thread. I just loved that. It gave me a lot of energy. And in the process, I had built things from scratch to hundreds of millions of dollars in run rate and profitable businesses. And I think that really positioned me well for FTD because the role at the time required an entrepreneurial lens. Mm-hmm. Um, I think traditional and a traditional approach to merchandising at that time, given what that team was and that company was going through, um, would have likely met a lot of frustration in the experience. Um, and like I said, so much needed to be, I think, sort of um, retooled um, and also required that really stronger bonds were formed across divisions like we talked about um, and, and much better communication. And that's a bit of my calling card. So, um, you know, much of the connective tissue between the major divisions um, was something that I really focused on and felt like I a lot of what I had, had done in my prior roles kind of set me up well for that. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because at first, you know, I think of FTD as a retailer, but it's it's really a, a tech company at its core. I think, you know, you've talked about that. Your CEOs have talked about that. How do you apply that kind of thinking to your role in merchandising? Like, was it was it the tech that appealed to you as well? Or was it kind of the more merchandising aspect? Um, such a good question. So I like to come at things from the angle of what is the consumer looking for? what's our competitive advantage, and then really lean into that overlap. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where I get excited in the um, sort of that intellectual question. And then executing that is obviously, right, it's all in the execution of it. But I did pretty extensive research in my time at FTD, and consumers told us more and more that they wanted to send gifts same day or next day, that for them, speed was everything. Mm-hmm. And where they were spending money was increasingly outside of florals or in floral pairings, which I found really interesting. And they wanted something unique. 
the ability to put together an offering that was special. So we started to see the floral network as actually a powerful same day delivery system for gifting that our tech powered. We were the point of sale in many of the, you know, 9,000 plus strong um, floral network that we have. Um, and on the product development side, I really leaned into that. You know, mm -hmm. how could I create something really special that our floral network could deliver same day or next day that you couldn't get anywhere else? Mm -hmm. That's what kind of got me very excited. So we actually launched a number of collaborations. We paired um, Christina Tozzi's Milk Bar, Cakes yeah. and Cookies. I with saw our, that one. I was very excited about that one. <laughs> yeah, with our, with our best-selling flowers. That one, you know, super fun. We did a Bake by Melissa collaboration. We launched our own candle. We made that available with flowers that um, same day and next day. And all these categories were, these were where consumers were actually spending more money on gifting and where they said they actually really wanted to, to pair those with florals. And we just saw that um, it had such a fun and excellent result. It activated our email file. It drove really strong return purchase into our flagship offering in the end. So, you know, when people would come back, they would buy into the, you know, the, the, the offering that we've had for quite a long time. And in the end, it really helped us dust off a brand that can you believe it? It's been around for over a hundred years. Right, right. And that's the innovation that I think uh, appeals to a lot of leaders. And, you know, like you said, choosing companies that are about to reinvent the space. I mean, you were really in in that and, and really saw the transformation through to, to the other end. So kudos for you. Thank you. Okay. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about some personal things. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I know that you took a pause from work to have a baby in 2020. Congratulations, by the way. And the only reason that I know that is because I saw that you put it on your LinkedIn profile. I think you wrote, you know, full-time mom or maternity leave or something like that. And I, I hesitate to ask this question because I know that we never would have asked this question as a man, but as a, as a women's organization, and we have a lot of moms, you know, in our membership, a lot of moms listening who might be in a similar position, you know, what advice do you have for kind of re-entering the workforce following this life change? And, and even, you know, what made you decide to to take that break and to kind of put it out there as like, look, this is a real thing. Being a full-time mom is a full-time job. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to put that on my resume, put that on my LinkedIn and treat it as any other job. So first of all, thank you so much for asking this question. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you did. And I think, you know, I intentionally put it on my resume and I'm thankful that actually during that time, LinkedIn, LinkedIn gave us a way to represent the choices we make in our career better in a more well-rounded way. That was like a new function that didn't exist before. And, you know, career is often not a straight line as many people make it out to be. Um, so I, I made the decision actually because, you know, I had my son really two minutes before lockdown mm. for co in COVID. So um, it became quite challenging with no childcare, a three month old sleep deprivation, um, two parents working from home, passing an infant back and forth between meetings to show up the way I wanted to show up in, in, in all the, in all the ways, right. As a partner, as a mother, as a, as a COO at the time. Um, and so for me, I, I felt that, um, I just wanted to take a step back and see what came to the surface for me. And 
initially I wasn't sure how long I wanted that to be. And then, um, the more and more I gave myself some space to kind of, um, see how I felt about it, the more I felt sure that I wanted to be with my son till he was at least a one, one years old. So I stayed with him for his first year. Um, and I loved that, um, such a really a, a gift. Um, so the advice I kind of have to other parents who are in the process of that, of, of making that decision or have made that decision to step out of the workforce for a period of time is really just to own it, own it as big as you can. I have actually found no recruiter or CEO to look poorly on that decision when I tell my story. And I often get into much more detail in, in those, in those conversations. Um, and in fact, I found that it helped lay the groundwork for setting, um, an equitable environment for parents. Once I stepped into a leadership role at FTD. Um, and that, so, so for me, that was, that's kind of point one. And then the next is, um, you know, for new parents, I would say is how you think about restructuring your time now that you're bringing family and work together, going back into the workforce, thinking you're going to put it all together exactly as you did before is just setting yourself up for failure. Um, you know, and every parent will tell you there's no two days that are the same small humans throw all the biggest challenges your way. Um, so I would say, you know, looking for an environment that allows you the flexibility to be successful in the way that works for you not a stringent set of codes, that's going to give you the best opportunity or the best chance to really, again, show up the way you want to show up, be happy, be the parent and partner you want to be. Um, and I think developing a set of questions going into that interview process that's going to let you unearth that is, and asking that same question to everyone you talk to is really helpful. And then, you know, if you have a life partner, just so important that you have lots of conversation about how you're going to support one another in what you both need to succeed and what that's going to look like. And that is also not a thing, you know, you have to work on that every day. It's if, if both, if both parents are working um, and then just be gentle on yourself, you know, expect it to all look different because it's definitely going to. Yeah. And I think the more, the more parents who go into any sort of job interview or networking opportunity with the goal of asking those questions, the more companies will be aware of the need for that flexibility and that parental leave and everything that we just talked about. So, mm -hmm. and I know, you know, we, we have uh, our peer groups with women in retail and so many of our members are our moms and they all laugh when we talk about work-life balance, because any parent will tell you that there is no such thing as a work-life balance and mm -hmm. moms especially, you know, <laughs> carry that guilt, right. Of, we call it mom guilt of, you know, if I'm, if I'm focusing on my kids, then I'm you know not focusing hundred percent on my job and vice versa. And like you said, it's that, it's that balance of having a great partner who's in line with your priorities and your values, having a company who's in line with your values and your priorities, and then, you know, restructuring your, your day in a way that really works for you. Mm-hmm. And not expecting it to all look the same every day. Right. I think pre-kids, you can have a pretty repeatable schedule. Um, but with small humans, you know, you just can't. There's mm -hmm. fevers, there's school closures, there's all kinds of stuff. So I like to think about it more like the week versus the day. Like, what am I, what do I need to accomplish this week? And 
what, what's happening today or tomorrow and sort of where are the pockets of time that allow me to get to the core goals from this week um, versus expecting every day to have the energy level be exactly the same with the exact same amount of hours and it all been put together um, identical, you know, back to what I was saying, you just set yourself up for failure that way. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you want to look for environments that um, believe in your ability to succeed and just care about, just care about your hitting the goal and not the way you hit the goal. Right. And, and it goes back to, you know, in the workplace, if you have a leader who you're seeing have that flexibility in their own personal life, they're going to be more likely to embrace that as well. When they see a leader who's like, I don't care when you, when you pick up your kids, wh when you have time to do this, as long as it's done, like you said, hitting the goal, it doesn't really matter which way you take to get to that goal. Mm -hmm. And just dispelling the notion that it, this equals less hours put into the job or mm -hmm. um, less effective. It, it doesn't. And I think that's often the fear of, an, of the employer, right? Oftentimes I find parents to be the most efficient because they know they have guardrails at the top and the bottom of their day, right? Right. They have to relieve childcare. They have to do drop off. Um, so you're just, you're a bit of like an excellent executing machine <laughs> in <the> hours <laughs> in between. And then you find pockets of energy at odd times, you know, after your kid goes to bed because you want to do dinner every night with your family, if that's a choice you make, et cetera. So um, I think in just dispelling that notion for people is also really important. Mm -hmm. Yep. Agreed. Okay. So I want to kind of close with asking you what's, what's next, you know, what are you looking <laughs> forward to both, you know, professionally and personally as we get, I can't believe I'm saying this, get towards 2024. I know, I know. Um, well, certainly this is a super interesting moment for me. I'm really excited about my next chapter. Um, I feel in many ways, I'm finally the leader I always wanted to be. Certainly we all have room to keep growing, but um, I feel I feel like I've really come into my own a lot in the past three years. You know, I'm looking to be with the next great team and business that I'm passionate about. I had some really amazing colleagues in, in this last role. And I think that always is what, you know, makes or breaks the experience. And then above all, just, you know, really putting, putting first and foremost, showing up as a great partner to my husband and son um, in, in this next year. Um, so that's what I've got top of mind. And um looking forward to how it unfolds. Awesome. Well, the final question I want to ask you, I mean, you've already given us so much advice uh, throughout this conversation, but if I could just pick your brain one last time and ask you, what are, what's one tip or one piece of advice that you have for the next generation of female retail, retail leaders who, you know, should be focused on advancing their careers? Um, thanks for that. It's a good one. Um, I think Besides, you know, navigating the ongoing trends in tech, certainly the conversation around AI is endless, you know, um, next, the next gen conversations around measurement, um, omni-channel retail, et cetera. I would say, you know, really just looking for opportunities to take the business to the next level, stepping out of your myop myopia to, to solve problems, you know, be the one to challenge the way it's always been done, or just start by asking questions. I find that it's always those people who are naturally elevated. And I think if you come at it from that perspective, 
there's going to be this nice synergy of where your, where your strengths lie and what the business needs that helps get you ahead in the way that is the best for you. Awesome. Well, I mean, there's so much great advice in here and I cannot wait to see what is next for you. You know, hopefully we can have you back on uh, in the future when we, when we see you in your next role. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Christina, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks for listening. For more information on this podcast, please go to womeninretail.com slash podcasts for show notes. Women in Retail Talks is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Make sure to subscribe on our podcast channel page as well. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a few moments to rate and review our show. Lastly, if you're a female retail leader interested in joining our community at Women in Retail Leadership Circle, visit womeninretail.com slash apply. Thanks, and until next time, This has been Women in Retail Talks.